That's the small talk. Now let's get down to business. Now, your programme. What's the big idea? Well, they've grown to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white, and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Charlie Threego! Hello and welcome to another episode of An Irishman Abroad. And I'm recording this on a very strange day. Earlier today, I recorded an episode of An Irishman in America with Marion McKeown. And uh, Peter Gagan, my guest today, sent me an email reminding me that I hadn't emailed him back after months and months of trying to get an interview with Peter. Uh, it was one of those ones that got left on the long finger. But as a look would have it, Peter emailed me today and I realised there's never really been a better time to talk to Peter Gagan. Peter is, of course, an Irish writer, broadcaster and uh, investigations editor at the award-winning news website Open Democracy. He's also written an incredible book, Democracy for Sale, Dark Money and Dirty Politics. And really, Peter, you correct me if I'm wrong on this, but the book really looks at how the involvement of money in politics can ultimately lead to disillusionment with political systems in and of themselves. Now, do you connect the behaviours and the activity that we've seen in the US in the last 24 hours to that in any way? Well, I think it's it's really fascinating, Jarl, and I think you're 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 really you're really accurate about what I my book is is really looking at. It's looking at how money gets into the political system. Lots of like you know it's it's you know it's like water in a way it'll it'll seep into it. Water seeps into something in lots of different ways. It'll find ways into the political system. You know, through election financing, through buying of ads on TV, on Facebook, and things like that. But all the time, it starts to warp and corrode the political system. And what we've seen in America over the last four decades, really, five decades, is what we call this thing called dark money, which is a kind of neologism, is Americanism, really, for money like that, that gets into the political system, and secretively we don't see where it goes. And what that's been doing for the last four or five decades is really corroding people's trust or faith in things that they see around them. You know, and I think what we've seen really in America in the last 24 hours is that it's kind of like the apogee of that. If you erode people's trust in things, don't be surprised when you almost lose control of it. And what do I mean by that? So, you know, in my book, I, I, I talk quite a bit about the history of kind of dark money in American politics. And basically what happened was about 45 years ago, 50 years ago, and it started in the 1970s. Small groups of industrialists, people like the Koch brothers who are kind of billionaire oil magnets, they decided that they wanted to get involved in politics. But they kind of realized that rather than trying to buy political influence, you know, trying to buy a politician to do them a favor, they wanted to change the ideas the politicians talked about. So what they started to do is they started to put money into what are called like kind of really fake research institutes 
think tanks, researchers, lobbyists, people behind the scenes of politics, media, rather than trying to buy politicians, they wanted to kind of buy this idea space. And what they were doing was pushing ideas that suited their business interests. So as you can imagine, if you're an oil magnet, you don't like environmental regulation. You don't want really to tell people that like burning fossil fuels is a bad idea. The same thing happened with tobacco lobby, with cigarette smoking. You know, it took us it took decades before it was actually able to be able to, you know, of lobbying to stop people being able to say cigarettes cause cancer. And that wasn't that didn't happen by nature. That happened with all this lobbying. So this has been going on for years and years, this kind of lobbying around Things like climate change is one of the reasons why America went from a system, a situation in the 70s and 80s where climate change and, and the concern about the climate was a bipartisan thing. Republicans were just as likely to care about the climate as Democrats to where we are now, where climate change denialism on the right of American politics is completely endemic. You know, the kind of people you, we saw storming the Capitol in Washington, D.C. on January the 6th. You know, they're not good. They're all people almost to a man who will not believe in, in climate change and man-made climate change. So why is that? Well, the reason I think, and one of the reasons I think it's quite a compelling case is that what you saw was all this money started to go into politics and, and to warp politics in the political system. But then what's happened more recently is that these kind of people who try and fund politics have lost control of that. You know, they've lost the ability actually to control the people that they're trying to control. And what do I mean by that? I mean, really, what we've seen is the explosion in social media and explosion in online politics has meant that these kind of conversations have taken on a life of their own and ran away from them. Hmm. So I mentioned earlier that, there. That, that's just just to stop you there. I yeah, mean, that's obviously partially down to everybody being their own newspaper, everybody being their own news outlet, that each and every Twitter account that has 10,000 followers has its own, carries its own weight. Is that correct? That's a huge part of it. So there's like the, the, the kind of the way in which information travels is much harder to control than it was, say, back even back in the early 2000s, where you set up your think tank and you've got your talking heads who go on to media shows and say, look, climate science is there's a lot of dispute between these scientists about climate change. We don't really know if it's happening. Now you've got this proliferation of accounts. But you've also that's also happened within a context within which trust and faith in kind of accepted norms and values has been eroded by all this kind of money. So for decades, this was eroding this, you know, a great example of this is, is the Tea Party that kind of came before Trump. If you remember that back after Barack Obama was elected, we saw this kind of similar Similar in some respects, insurgency on the right of American politics, you know, supposedly grassroots. It was before really the social media age, but, you know, saying that Barack Obama was really born in Kenya. He was a Muslim. He, he was, you know, he wasn't a, he wasn't a real American. He shouldn't be president. And that movement was funded by these same kind of big money backers, the people like the Koch brothers. They really funded this kind of thing. And so that was the kind that was really pivotal for spreading this kind of really what's you know, kind of active falsehoods into politics. But the problem then is what we're seeing now is that, you know, you, you once you've let like once you've kind of let the horse out of the stable, it's really, really hard to get it back in again. So. You've actually saw just around the time in uh, the American election, David Koch gave an interview to the Wall Street Journal in which he said, you know, oh boy, oh boy we've screwed up and was kind of contrite for spending all this money eroding trust in politics. About $1.5 billion he spent between him and his brother. The, these guys and I think, is it is it dark money was the 
book about this, right? What, wasn't that the book? Yes, it is a seminal book by Jane Meyer it, at the it, New York at the New Yorker. And it's such cute horrorism on the highest yeah. level, really, because yeah. if they were to buy a politician, that would be illegal. I mean, what they've done isn't illegal. What they've done is really come around the side door and fed in money where money was needed, but just kind of leaned on it to be about the things, the discussions to be about the things that would benefit them, correct? Completely. And in the process, they eroded the kind of middle ground in which people could have political conversations where they there was accepted things that you can agree on. You, you could say there is an accepted objective reality. I might have a different view about what we should do about it, but we can have an accepted conversation within which there is a limit of, of, of truth and falsehood. And the birther, thing, the birther movement, which kind of be, in many ways Donald Trump came out of, you know, Donald Trump obviously was on the scene for a long time, but he was one of the most vociferous people saying that Barack Obama wasn't born in, in America. Mm. And that, you know, he was able to feed off the energy which in which, you know, feed off this kind of manipulation of politics, which had already been going on for so long in America and, and elsewhere. And that's what's so crucial about this. So the way in which that kind of money feeds into the system, it means, it means we end up talking about things that, you know, you wouldn't otherwise be talking about, but you can't see it happening. And that, I think, is really crucial to understand how we've got to where we are yeah, now. So, so it is very easy. And you watch all of this take place and you, you even watch your friends and their postings. It seems like the tendency is to go, oh, isn't America terrible? This kind of thing happens in America. We've such a, a propensity towards uh, going, Americans are mad. Sure, sure. That's that's the way they are over there, shooting guns into the sky. But in reality, using money to influence politics where I live in England is way cheaper. And your book outlines this. Maybe give people an idea of how little money you need to be consistently invited to meetings with the prime minister. Well, this is one of the fascinating things. I totally agree. I think we have a tendency to look at things that happen in America as something totally other, something completely different to what happens wherever we are, whether that's in Britain or in Ireland or anywhere else. But actually, you know, in many ways, what we see in Britain, Ireland and other countries is very, very, very similar. So in Britain, for example, you can become a member of what's called the, the leaders group of conservative donors. So this is the, the leading group of conservative donors. So bear in mind, in America, you're talking about millions of dollars almost you know, to get any political influence at all, even, you know, in, even in a state. In Britain, for just £50,000 a year, you can become a member of the Conservative Leaders Group. And what do you get for your £50,000? Well, you get at least every quarter, so every three months, you get to go to a meeting with the Prime Minister and Cabinet Ministers and other Leaders Group donors that is completely off the record. We don't know anything about it. We don't know who's there. We don't even know where it's held or when it's held. And everything that's discussed is secret. So this is huge opportunities for lobbying and influence for a fraction of the price. And what you've seen, like in Britain, we've seen this. We've just, you know, I've been writing a lot this year since I finished a book. I, I ended up doing a lot of investigations into the coronavirus and the contracting that went on around the coronavirus virus, we saw billions of pounds worth of contracts go to government, uh, go from government to people who are politically connected, often to firms that had no experience whatsoever. We saw people like Conservative Party uh, councillors given 
300 million pound contracts to provide personal protective equipment despite having never done anything like that in the past so the opportunities for access and for enrichment are absolutely massive i mean this is probably what's to come to light in the next 12 months i mean there's no way that this kind of turmoil can take place without someone trying to slide something under the wire i mean even the way the vaccine is being allocated the groups to which it's being allocated is another scandal that's bound to blow up in the next 12 months you yourself investigating this peter must start to feel a little bit like a a, a dimmer view of human instinct and human nature when you consistently everywhere you look and the meetings you have on the record and off the record tend to lean towards shady dealings taking place regardless of what the situation is well I guess like where I come from when it comes to where I come to my work from is that I think, you know, I am a big believer in the kind of rules and regulations that are supposed to kind of go around and guard this, whether it's allocations of vaccines or or procurement contracts or wherever else. And the thing that I find most depressing is actually that when someone like me or somebody else is able to show demonstrably that rules have not been followed, say that, you know, the best friend of a government minister has got been given a great big contract things do not are not happening there's not a reaction to it and it's not just people like me like for example so in britain we had a thing called the national audit office which is basically the watchdog for government spending they did an investigation on the back of of the kind of work that me and other journalists have been doing about covid contracting they reported just in november and they said look we they actually identified that there was a thing called a vip channel in these procurements. So if you were politically connected, you got put into a VIP channel and you were 10 times more likely to get a contract. So that's coming from the National Audit Office. That's not, that's a government's own watchdog telling you that. What changed on the back of that? Nothing. And I think that's what's really difficult. I think that's what's the struggle for, for people like me. You know, it's less that like, you know, human nature is what it is. We can't change human nature. You know, it's it's there since the start of time. You know, we're both Irish. We're well aware of the cute horizon that's gone on in Ireland and mm-hmm. Irish politics for decades, you know. And you don't have to scratch far below the surface to find that. And what we've tried to do in Ireland and, you know, um, what we try and do, most countries try to do is put in systems in place to try and you know, to stop people, uh, kind of people's... Yeah, checks uh, and balances. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) And the problem is when they aren't, when they don't work. So, you know, to take it back to the kind of thing we were looking at in in America, when you have politicians like you had Republican, you had over 100 Republican politicians in the House of Representatives yesterday who stood up and said, you know, they had issues with how the election, that Donald Trump was the winner of the election, or at least... 127 in total. Madness. Incredible. That's a vote that Joe Biden won by more than 7 million votes. And this is the problem when politicians feel they can get away with things like that, because they obviously feel like they can get away with it. That's where the issue, that's when it becomes really difficult because Mm -hmm. you're trying to rein back, whether it's, you know, whether it's grandstanding like that or contracting, it's really difficult then because, you know, these, these politicians clearly see that there's, there's an advantage. They wouldn't do this if they didn't feel there was an advantage for them in it. So I, I don't know if I read this in your book or whether this was in one of the interviews I read or heard you do. But to this point, I think you pointed out that the punishment for breaching electoral law in the UK is £20,000. That's the that's the most that you can be fined 
for breaking electoral law. Have I got that right? Am I remembering yes, that correctly? Yes, I have, Darlene, actually. That's, that is the maximum fine. And so, so, for example, I did a lot of work looking at the Leave campaigns during the referendum. So Vote Leave broke the law by overspending during the, election, during the 2016 Brexit referendum. That's now established, a legal fact. They overspent by more than half a million pounds. Their spending ceiling was seven million pounds, and they, so they overspent by you know by a, de- a, a large large amount. The maximum fine for them was just twenty thousand pounds, which is a fraction of their overall spending, hmm. and that's actually the maximum fine. So if you so they probably a, budgeted for the fine. Well, this is what's happening. If you talk to politicians, they will tell you actually it's just the cost of doing business. You just you 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 put that into the hat at the same time. Yeah, it's like You're, in the in the NBA, they have a luxury tax. If you play, you can pay your players X amount, but if you're going to be the LA Lakers and you want to pay everybody loads, you have to pay a luxury tax, and it's understood. Well, they can afford it. So if you're the Tories and you have that kind of money, then you just go. Well, that's the tax for being as big a spender as we are. But the thing that you cite as the beginning of a lot of this. Uh, is your time in Sunderland and this moment that you picked up a copy of the Metro during uh, the Brexit campaign and you noticed that the big, you everybody knows these wraparound ads that go kind of a fake cover on the Metro that is the most expensive ad you can get, obviously, with this paper. And you noticed that it wasn't funded by the Tories. It wasn't funded by a party on that island. It was someone else. Yes, I was in Sunderland just a few days before the Brexit referendum, working for the Irish Times, actually. And I was kind of leaving Sunderland at the train station. I, I picked up, as you say, this copy of the Metro, this glossy, expensive looking wraparound advert. And I noticed I kind of flipped it over and noticed on the back it had a little logo, a little lion head logo of the Democratic Unionist Party, the DUP. And it said paid for on behalf of the Democratic Unionist Party. Went, That's very curious. You know, why is the DUP? This party back in Northern Ireland spending money hundreds of miles away on really expensive adverts. And that really was the question that started me off on this quest that led to me writing my book and led to to a lot of work I, I do today. And what was fascinating about that was that I had worked in Northern Ireland before as a journalist. I was aware that political donations in Northern Ireland were kept secret because of legislation dating back to the Troubles. So I thought to myself, I wonder if someone's giving money to the DUP, like kind of funneling money to the DUP to spend, because why else would the DUP be buying these kind of expensive adverts? And, you know, kind of, and I, and I thought, well, I wonder what's going on with that. And what was interesting, I started digging into it. I started doing a kind of investigating what had happened. And it took, you know, it took about six months before I could start to find out what had happened. But basically what, it, you know, what had happened was almost half a million pounds had been funneled through a, a kind of a, a thing called an unincorporated association, a thing called the Constitutional Research Council, which sounds really grand. It sounds like the kind of thing that would have a big fancy office in London with lots of well-paid researchers doing loads of work. It's not. It's almost a legal fiction. It doesn't have any legal standing. It doesn't file accounts. It doesn't have a list of members. The only person who it's attached to is a man called Richard Cook, who is a former Scottish Conservative uh, election candidate who lives in a, a semi-detached pebble dash house on the outskirts of Glasgow. And this money, almost f- half a million pounds, had gone through the Constitutional Research Council into the DUP in the run-up to the Brexit referendum, very close to the end. So when all these other campaigns had reached their spending limits, they couldn't spend any more money, up pops the DUP 
which is pro-Brexit, had registered as a campaign, so could spend money and spends all this money on things like this, not just this wraparound advert we discovered. There was Facebook adverts that went across the United Kingdom. There was lots of paraphernalia, lots of, you know, Brexit um, posters and T-shirts and things like that. Again, all paid for in England, almost all circulated in England, nothing to do with Northern Ireland, but all going through the Democratic Unionist Party. So I started, you know, trying to find out, well, how is this even possible? And it turns out that it, it was possible because of this uh, this loophole. And what I find quite remarkable is we, we I did a lot of investigations into Richard Cook and the Constitutional Research Council, discovered that Richard Cook had a lot of very questionable business dealings. He'd gone into business with the former head of Saudi secret intelligence. A number of his, um, his business interests had flopped quite spectacularly. He wasn't a man of significant means at all. Indeed, he actually never said that the money came through him. It had come through somebody else and even though i've written this book about all of this dark money and done so many investigations actually i still don't know to this day where all that money uh, for the dup's brexit campaign came from and if you think about how important northern ireland was in, in the aftermath of brexit all those years and, and and to this day it is quite remarkable that it's still possible just to, to to push money anonymously through the dup into a massive political campaign i mean it's it's a sad book in so many ways. It's a sad indictment and a kind of for a lot of people, it won't some some of the things in it won't be new to them that they be like, oh, I was aware of this in some way, shape or form. But then there's there's other parts where you're just realizing the mountain of misinformation that we're being fed through platforms like Facebook. Do you now think that those platforms, now that we've seen Zuckerberg on the stand being asked directly, will you take down a story containing a lie and him kind of ducking and weaving to avoid that point? Well, it depends on the circumstances. We all know the, you know, the uh, testimony that I'm referring to here. Do these platforms now have, have they gone rogue? Are they, are they the issue? to an extent. Well, I thought it was really striking that in the wake of the the um, the attack on Capitol Hill and afterwards, President Trump issued the most non-apology apology. I'm sure many of your listeners heard it in which he said multiple times the election was stolen, but, but kind of go home, but come back, basically. And after that, Twitter took that down and Facebook banned him too. A cynic would say, well, why have you waited until now before doing it? Is it because earlier in the day, the Democrats won control of Georgia, which means that they won, they have now got control of the Senate, the House and the presidency, so can do pretty much whatever they want. And regulation of social media companies is almost is looks like it'll be on, on the agenda because it's something a lot of Democrats have been talking about. And for so long, especially Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook have intentionally done nothing about online misinformation at all. If anything, they've actually brought in changes which have helped it. You know, the face, Facebook brought in Facebook groups, which they said, you know, they said it was going to be to try and encourage people to have more interesting conversations together. 
in more private settings. Well, we know what's happened really is these groups have become a place in which disinformation, whether it's about the reality of COVID or anything else, has really mushroomed. We saw so many of those protesters waving QAnon flags. And again, I'm sure your listeners know a bit about QAnon, this conspiracy theory that Donald Trump is kind of leading a fight against a cabal, a global cabal of, of pedophiles uh, and satanic child abusers, which went from the fringes of the internet to to what is now a massive uh, a massive kind of cult phenomenon. And I was really struck watching those people been interviewed um, on, Cap- on Capitol Hill, that they sounded like people who were in a cult. They were saying the exact same statements. Every single one was saying, you know, the election's been stolen. You know, we need to protect our, protect our country. The exact same almost word for word phrases. And these are people who have been radicalized online. They've been radicalized on social media. And, you know, I think what happened was all these decades of eroding trust in politics, of undermining the political process through money, has made it so soft and easy now for misinformation to spread so far and wide. And the social media companies, my big concern is almost that we're so late to this now. You know, if if and when there is some sort of regulation around Facebook and other places. There's so many of these people who are now so radicalized, they're going to go on to other forums. They already are going on to other forums. And the very act of Facebook doing something, which will help, I do think I do think that's not an argument to not do something. Like we did see when people like Tommy Robinson, the English far-right leader, was kicked off Facebook. It has a real effect on his ability to, to reach people. And I think that's important. It's not a reason not to do something. But these the likes of Facebook waited so long before doing something. I think it's going it, it, it's to make it way harder to try and stop the spread now. Well, later in the conversation, I do want to talk to you about our own home, back home, and how money has influence there and how, as you say, we probably did everything we could to avoid repeating the history of the brown envelope and the hockey years. But I wonder, you know, where we are with that right now, in your opinion. But before we get there, I do want to dig a little bit into the subject that you're least comfortable talking about yourself. After studying at NUIG, you moved to New York to study environment psychology at the City of University of or the City University of New York. What the hell is that? Is <laughs> my first question. <laughs> it's a good question, actually. Uh, it's one of those. I was very lucky. I went to the city, CUNY, the City University, the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, um, and I went into their psychology department and started studying environmental psychology, which is basically the psychology of space and place um, and how space and place influences people. And I've always been interested in things like that, how the environments in which we live and the people we interact with and the context in which we grow up in which we live kind of influences how we think and act. And it was a fascinating department to be in because it was kind of a creation of the kind of radical 60s. So you had not just psychologists, you had architects, you had town planners, geographers, you know, all in this this one space. So it was really interesting conversation. And actually, the Graduate Centre in Cooney had been probably the psychology department was most famous for the Milgram experiments, which you might have of heard course, of. Yeah. Stanley Milgram's experiments back in the 60s about, about obedience in which he shocked or delivered while fake electric shocks to... Yeah, Bill um, Murray was involved, I believe, at the opening oh, scene of uh, Ghostbusters. 
<laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, yes. That's very much so, yes. And so that was a really interesting experiment. And it was one of the things I, I knew the City University for from before I went. And so it was a really interesting, kind of really rich environment in which a lot of people were like kind of having quite interesting and radical kind of thoughts about the world around them. Mm. So, yeah, I, I was very lucky to, uh, to spend some time there. It was quite fascinating. Well, obviously, there's from our own perspective, that that's a big question, you know, how your where you come from influences who you become. And to a large extent, the Irishman Abroad podcast is focused on that very question. And I know that when you went to Edinburgh to do your PhD, you focused your studies on post agreement Northern Ireland. What did that centre upon and, you know, what kind of an understanding did that give you? Because when you grow up in Longford or in Kildare, in my case, I mean, Northern Ireland just seemed like a world away. I mean, you go, you go abroad and people are like, oh, there, there's a war on your island. And you're like, I, I, I didn't have a huge amount of experience of it. Where, where did you get to with that? And how, how long did it take for you to open your eyes up fully to what that experience was for people in Northern Ireland, how blind we are to it in the South? I think I was always really fascinated with Northern Ireland growing up almost for that reason. You know, um, I'm not we're probably similar enough age. I'm, I'm in my late 30s. So kind of, you know, grew up with the, with the tr- tail end of the troubles and then and kind of came of age politically around the time of the Good Friday Agreement. So I was really fa- and I think I was fascinated by it almost because so few people around me seemed interested in this. I was like, well, there's this really, imp- you know, kind of a, a civil war has been raging on this island you know, 30, 40 miles away from, from where I was growing up in Longford. And we never really talked about it. We never went to Northern Ireland. You know, people, we had some, because of our geographical location, I was always, we had a number of family, like I, quite a few people I went to school with, their family were from Northern Ireland and they'd moved down when the trouble started, but they never talked about it either. You know, and I remember one of my brother's best friends when I was growing up, his father had been an SDLP politician in Derry during the 70s and had moved down. So those sort of stories were there, but never really talked about. You'd have to go and scratch at them to find them out. Mm. Um, and I was, I found that really, in, I was very interested by that really almost. I was like, well, what is going on? What's, what is like, what's life like there? And I found like a lot of people in, in the, in the Republic, I've always felt have kind of had this kind of almost embarrassment about Northern Ireland, a kind of sense of, we don't want to talk about it. Let's not, let's not almost engage with it. The whole language of Nordies to describe people from Northern Ireland, it all seems to be couched in a sense of like, you know, kind of there's, they're this other that we don't, you know, they're kind of part of us, but not really part of us. And it's only, I think some of that might have changed in the last few years a bit. I think there's much more interest in Northern Ireland. even.